I am Laura McCowan, and I am Holly Whitaker, and this is Home Podcast. Hello, my queen. How are you? Hello, in your new microphone. Do I sound like I'm talking into a new microphone? Yes. Mm. Do I? Mm -hmm. It makes me want to talk very slowly, and... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Dream. Also, I'm really concerned about like heavy breathing. Um, like, <gasps> I'm afraid of that happening. Yeah. Don't do uh, mouth breathing. Oh, it's awful. Anyway, um, okay, cool. So, how are you, like how are things in your world? Good. Things are good. <laughs> I'm in a writing. I'm in a full on writing bubble. I know it's annoying. You still haven't read that thing I sent you, or maybe you have, and it was just so bad you didn't want to give me any commentary back. No, I just ha- didn't have it in me yet. Mm-hmm. Okay. For more words. Um, awesome. That's good. You're a little writing machine. Yeah. It is. I don't. I have no idea what day it is. I do know I have to pick up my daughter. It's Tuesday. I know. I just figured that out. By the way, I yeah. like. I never know what day it is anymore. Yeah, I'm starting to. Li- <laughs> No less. If I didn't have a kid, I definitely wouldn't know. But my mom and I texted this morning and she was like, I was like, why are you answering me so early? Because she was in Hawaii. And she said, I'm home. I've been home since Saturday. So now she's in Texas. I'm like, oh, sorry. (laughs) No, no grasp on other people's lives. One really quick tidbit from the writing cave. That is funny. You'll appreciate this. So last night, I, I right now I'm writing about my parents' divorce, and I realized I don't really have timelines. That I don't know that much. I was only, it turns out I was five. I thought I was six. I, I was only five. So what I think I remember, you know, I don't really even know if I remember if it was just what has been told to me over the years. And so I start texting my dad, my dad, and I go. You know, I'm asking him, what what year was it? Do I remember this correctly? Do I remember that correctly? And uh, he's like, it was this year. He says it's 80, it was 83. You were this age. Your brother was this age. And I said, am I right about that there was a big blizzard and that you, you know, things w- went this way? I told him what my story was. And he's like, no, it was like this and this and this and this. And I'm like, hmm, okay. So I text my mom start firing off questions. She, by the way, is like, why are you asking me this? What's going on? Are you okay? Like she has to call me immediately. Whereas my dad just answers the questions. (laughs) And I'm like, I'm just writing. And you know, she's not like, she's not used to talking about things like this, just on the regular, like we are. So she's like, no, you were this age, totally different story than my dad. You were this age. It was like this. Your dad wasn't there. He arrived. He walked in a snowstorm and I'm like, this is awful. Like, there's no real account for what actually happened. Um, and so I asked my dad, I said, um, did you did you think it was just in the, like some random winter night? Because I do remember it was winter. And he goes, well, it's a winter night. It was definitely a winter night. But when I'm feeling really sorry for myself, it was Christmas Eve. <laughs> <laughs> 
But it's so funny. It's so true because this week I did I did an interview with Andrea Owen and I was talking about the timeline between uh, my timeline to recovery and um I could not remember what happened first. And it's because when you start to tell these stories over and over and over and over again, like all of a sudden it is it like you start to create the memories um, in in a much different way and much different than they actually happened. Um, And so I got to this point where I was explaining wait, did I, did I freak out and try and quit my job first or did I go to the doctor first? And then I had to actually like sit in bed last night and, and go back and think through it. Um, mm-hmm. because it's, um, it is, it's interesting how we, it is interesting how we recreate memories and, um, and then the stories we tell ourselves. It's fascinating. Yeah, and I remember Mary Carr, um, in her re- recent book, the art of memoir, she talks about that. And I was thinking, that's not true. Like I remember stuff pretty well, you know, and as I'm going through it, it's apparent to me that we all have our kind of own individual stories of what happened. And I'm, you know, that's why there's disclaimers at the beginning of memoirs. Like these, this is the best I can remember. Um, but it was just really funny. It was, it was, I have not yet reached out to my parents to ask them anything, um, for, you know, many reasons, but I mostly I just haven't gone there yet. And so that was the first time I did. And it's like getting other people involved in your whole process is a whole bag of worms. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, so that's a little tale. I just loved the part, you know, if I'm feeling really sorry for myself, it's, it's, Christmas, it's Christmas Eve. Eve. That's awesome. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> so how are you? You're uh, heading over to my side of the country this afternoon. Of the pond. Um, yeah, I'm heading east. I'm going to New York for the next couple of days. Um, and what I'm, are you doing? I am meeting with um, some people that are helping me with what I'm doing, um, potential not, potential investors, um, advisors, uh, just people that are helping me figure out how to do this thing. Um, mm-hmm. I'm staying at the Bowery house, which is, uh, the, like, it sounds very cool, but you showed me your it room is a beautiful, well, it's the first time I've been to New York, like, you know, a lot and I've never paid for a hotel. I paid for a hotel the first time that I went there. Um, oh, no, actually my company paid for that or I've stayed with friends. I've stayed with boyfriends. I've, you know, I've, um, yeah. stayed at corporate apartments I've stayed at hotels that have been paid for me I've never had to find my own like hotel and pay for it out of pocket it's rude awakening right oh my god um so it's like it's not bad for two nights it's 222 dollars and um oh, that's not terrible it's not terrible but it's a cabin it's called a cabin and what they mean <laughs> by cabin it's is, the size of the bed it's the size <laughs> of the bed and it's shared bathrooms but it's a really beautiful it's a beautiful hotel it's a beautiful space and so it's um but i don't give a shit <laughs> no so when it comes to this stuff there. i'm so easy when i was in san francisco last week i was just like i had my suitcase at Terex. i was going back and forth between Terex and danny's um i had like mm-hmm. i just would take my toothbrush with me and like figure out if somebody had like something at their house that I could use to help me with my hygiene but it's like yeah I don't I don't give a shit I really don't um I'm just happy to have some place to stay um oh and wi-fi I do give a shit about wi-fi so um yeah, yeah so I'm excited Rebels. going to New York Good. staying like for the first time being a big girl buying my own hotel it's like mm-hmm. it's the 30th time that I've been to New York and this is the first time I've ever had to pay for it so it's really um I mean that's not bad so it's anyway 
Um, yeah, so that's what's going on with me. Um, yeah. Okay, so let's um, let's get into the intro. Before we do that, why don't you just take a half a minute to mm-hmm. talk about some of your stuff? Yeah, I will just talk about the next couple things I have going on. So this weekend, if you are in Boston or the area, there nope, are nope, five nope, spots. Nope, you got to remember that there's that this is not airing this week. We're airing the other one. This isn't going to air until next uh, week. I would never stay I'm staying at the Bowery ahead of time and tell people that. <laughs> <laughs> Good point, Halls. Good point. If you want to come rate me, I will be at this room. I'll be at this hotel in a cabin. <laughs> God. Okay. Um, yeah. okay. Um, so this will air next week. Right. This will okay, air a so week from tomorrow. Tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So the couple things I have announcements on, I am um, the retreat with Meadow DeVore in Bainbridge Island is coming up October 13th through the 16th. There are just a couple spots left. If you want to snag them, I am super excited about this retreat. I cannot, cannot, cannot wait both for where it is uh, and for what we are going to do there. So you can check out all the information. There's more than you need on my website. And then there are a couple other events you can check out on my website too. Um, Local, more local types of events. I'm going to be in, oh, Austin. I'm going to be in Austin November 11th through the 13th, and I'll be doing a yoga for recovery class on the 12th at Suka Yoga. And I think that's it for me right now. Very cool. If you want to send me coffee, I mean, please email me and I will give you my address for where to send it. Um, are you because saying that because I'm I got oh, okay? I was gonna say you're saying that this morning. I got a letter from one of you guys um, who uh, owns a pastry shop and um, offered and said if I was ever in your neighborhood, like you heard that I love sweets and pastries, and God bless you. I love you so much, um, and I will stop by your bakery <laughs> if I'm in your neighborhood. Okay, so then for for me, what I gotta say is that you guys, we are. This, if you're listening to the show and you've been listening for a while, you probably have noticed that our sound quality has improved and this is because we have invested in it. Um, we have hired a sound engineer, uh, and he's wonderful. And he's also doing it at a very generous discount. Um, but between him and also getting some administrative help for Laura and I, um, to, uh, you know, maintain the website, um, it's costing us about $800 a month. And so this is all out of pocket. Uh, for us. So there's a couple of ways you can support this. Number one is you can donate. If you go to homepodcast.org, you'll see a donate button. And we figured that if just, I think it was 250 of you donated $3 a month, like I feel like NPR, but I'm being honest here. If okay. if there was just a small amount of donation that came from a handful of you um, on a monthly recurring basis, this would this would take care of everything. We're not in this to make profit. We're in this truly just to to deliver this, um, and because we love doing it. Um, and so donations are so appreciated. And then the second thing is we also put a store up um, on Store Envy. It can be accessed through HomePodcast.org. There are a ton of shirts and totes and mugs and cool stuff um, with slogans from the show and slogans from uh, mm-hmm. Laura's in my work. 
Um, and that also goes to supporting us to do this. So that's the first thing I want to say. The second thing I want to say is that, um, we, this week I am, uh, launching the, uh, hip sobriety school number four. So this is a small class of, of the school that I run. It's an eight week school that starts on October 13th, runs through December 11th. It's meant to get you ready for Christmas and hold your hand through Thanksgiving. Um, and this is a school that is uh, dedicated to helping people build holistic paths to sobriety. It's for people that are thinking about sobriety, people that are ready to take the leap um, and and practice quitting. Um, and also for people who are in sobriety, who are looking to build holistic, like a, like to really uh, strengthen their recovery. And so you can find out about that by going to my website, hipsobriety.com and clicking on coaching. So that's what I got. Let's get into it. So this is an interview that we did with uh, one of my friends um, who I met on my 10-day silent meditation retreat. Uh, He and I were in the back of a taxi cab in Hawaii and we were talking about um, who we were, what we did. And I told him about my work and then he writes me a long email the next day and, and, um, tells me that he, um, is in recovery for sex addiction and, uh, and, and told me all about it. And the first thing that came to mind was, Oh my God, we've got to have this guy on our podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he's on here anonymously and, um, and I, I think for me, this is such an interesting topic, especially in light of Glennon's book, Love Warrior. Um, her husband, Craig, um, I, I don't know if it's ever been said specifically, but you know, I'd say her husband Craig suffers from from something or did. I don't want to put a label on it, but I, I would say it's it sounds a lot like what JJ was struggling with. Um, and so there's that part of it, but I just think for me it's a really interesting subject to explore because I don't identify with sex addiction at all, but I do identify with love addiction. And I think that they're two very different things, but I also think that there is a play between the two. Meaning sure. I think that um I think that it's from like listening, I guess I'll just say Having this conversation with him um, was very raw for me. Um, being a woman who has been involved um, with men, who, you know, being a woman looking for something, being involved with a man who's looking for something, and those two things not necessarily being the same thing. Um, it was, a, it was, a, I think it was like, it was a, it was a great conversation. It was also one of those conversations where um, I had to, um, temper my my response um, yeah. not not temper it but just not you know I don't know how to say it because I well, love I love the guy of- I love the guy a lot and I really like and I honor that he came on and was brave enough to do this um but there were times like when he said naughty um when he said mm-hmm. that we're naughty and talked about women being naughty in the bedroom I um I raged I I really did and um it was just yeah I don't know what do you think no, I agree with you. I think it, it's it's touchy conversation. It's a touchy subject. It's still it's very still taboo in so many ways. I mean, I don't I've never talked to somebody who has dealt with sex addiction before. It was my first conversation, and you know, it touches a lot of nerves because we're all so connected in this way. You know, he as a as a woman who's been on the receiving end after having this conversation, I'm I realized I've been on the other side of this many times. 
and identify even some of his behaviors in my own behavior. Um, not, you know, it has a different spin, but it's still, it's tough. It's touchy stuff and it um, goes into territory that's really personal. So I loved it. I thought he was brave and honest and really important. It was important conversation. Yeah, I'll say the same. I thought the same thing too, which was exactly what you said. I've been on both. I've been on the other side of it, and also I could identify with, with his, um, with with some of his behaviors. And and yeah, he would. I mean, it. He he really he answered every question we gave him, and he was generous and mm-hmm. kind. And I really I felt like we could have. It's a long interview, but I felt like we could have kept going on it. So, um, yeah, I think it's great, and I think we'll probably have a follow up. Uh, but. Awesome. All right. Here's JJ. Hey, JJ. Welcome to our podcast. Thanks for doing this. Thank you. Yeah, I'm really excited about this. You and I met a while ago, and um, I told you my story, and it was really funny because as I told you my story, um, you had your own story about addiction, and you listened to me, and we had this great conversation about it, and then we parted ways, and then a couple days later, you wrote me this really beautiful email telling me about sex addiction and about your struggle with sex addiction, and um, it was just one of those things where it was it's it's so weird because you never know. And this is why it's so important, I think, to tell our stories and to talk about this stuff. You just really never know the how you're going to connect with someone. And when you have that in common, it just changes just changes everything. And so you and I became um, friends and and also we started talking about having you having you on our podcast and here you are and I'm so I'm just I'm so excited for this conversation because I think it's very important and something that's not very explored especially you know a significant amount of our viewers are female um, and so I think it's a really important thing to understand um, from a male's perspective um, and also just because it's something I think that's just not it's not really explored I don't know. What do you have to say to all that? Yeah, you're right on the money. And Holly, isn't it funny how quickly you can forge relationships when you just talk about your shit first? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's the way I roll now. <laughs> yeah, you know, and 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 it and and you can cut away all the crap. I, I mean, for me, it was harder, even with you being as vulnerable as you were in that cab ride back from you know from the Vipassana meditation retreat. As vulnerable as you were, it was still hard for me in that moment to open up to you, even though you'd created that space, because I think there is so much of a stigma around sex addiction. Mm-hmm. And there's not much of an understanding around what it is. It, 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 there's a wide ranging set of behaviors inside of it. Some really, really ugly shit and some really like pervasive stuff that um, I think a lot of people struggle with mm-hmm. and it just all, all gets lumped into one category. So I was hesitant and I agree with you hundred percent. I don't, I don't think it's well understood, which is why I was so, I don't know, excited to jump on your offer um, to come on your podcast. And I'm like that equal mix of excited and nervous. Yeah, because, that's the best. You know, yeah, it is. Like that, 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 that mixture, that intersection where you know something will be different, everything will be different after this kind of thing. Because I've never, even though I'm doing this anonymously, I've never spoken about this outside of certain circles. Yeah. Ah, so thank awesome. you for that opportunity. Yeah, and I thought it was really interesting because – 
I feel like some people say this is like, I feel like sometimes there's a pissing contest over what the most stigmatized addiction is. And when you said that to me, I thought, what's my immediate response to this? And my immediate response, this is, is what exactly what you said. Like, like there is a bit of an eye roll, like, oh, sex addiction, you poor thing, right? Like there is, (laughs) there is this, like, there's also this, this huge thing around it where it's like, um, I mean, it's, would you say it's primarily something that happens with dudes or do you think that this is like an equal opportunity? addiction? Well, based on the evidence of what I've seen in the room. So I, I go to Sex Addicts Anonymous, SAA, there's a number of other different programs, but in that particular room, I mean, it's 99.9% men. Yeah. And the other support groups like Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous um, tend to be a more equal mix of men and women. Yeah. Uh, and love addiction is, from my understanding, I, I haven't I haven't done a lot of exploration there, but my understanding is very different than the sex addiction. There's a lot more about codependency and mm-hmm. uh, love issues versus sex seems to be something a lot a lot different. We can get into that. Yeah, I would say I would identify with like love addiction sounds something that's familiar. Um, sex addiction is like I'm like the antithesis of sex addiction. Um, mm. So it's yeah, I would say they're two. They feel very different, and they do feel one feels very masculine, one feels very feminine. But anyway, all, all all this to say is that when you wrote me like when you wrote me that, I thought about like when you said it's it's just so stigmatized. I thought it. I mean. First of all, it is, but also it's like this thing that, um, I mean, our culture, it's, it's just like in our culture, it's almost like, like exactly what you said. Like, um, it is something that is, how do you, like glorified, like, um, you know, yeah. um, a man getting a lot of women or a man having a lot of a sex. So anyway, we'll jump into all of that. Um, I really, um, would love to have, um, Laura jump in and, and kind of, cause I know your story. So I'd really like Laura to kind of take you through understanding what your story is. Sweet. Oh, you want? I, I'm the lead. I'm leading the. I'm taking his hand and walking through. <laughs> Would you? You're so good at it. <laughs> um, no, I, I. We just want to hear your story, like you would share in a meeting if you had, you know, 15 minutes. Just tell okay. us your story. Wow. All right. Well, if um, along the way, please inter- interject. Yeah, if there's course. anything I could provide some color on. So, I mean, maybe to set the stage on who I am right now. Um, I am in my mid-30s. I live in New York City, spent a career uh, successfully in financial services, Um, grew up athletic, have a great social circle, have very close relationships with family and friends. To the outside world, um, people would look at me as being a a very high achiever, a leader um, inside of organizations, inside of friends, groups of circles of friends. No one that you would talk to would ever... Um, have suspected that there was some sort of undercurrent, some sort of addiction or some sort of major imbalance in my life. And so through that, there may be some of your listeners who can really relate to this idea of putting up a facade to the world, creating all of these other individual units of who you are, depending on the context, and never feeling fully authentic. Totally. You know? Fucking exhaust. I can say fucking. Um, you told me I said. I can say, right? <laughs> you can say you anything actually, here. You actually have to. So you, <laughs> oh, okay. yeah. So okay. there you we have tick marks. Yeah, you have to do it at least five times. <laughs> oh, I'm not going to hit that in the next couple of six seconds. Uh, <laughs> so, so you know, just the the exhaustion of putting up all these different facades, depending on the context, and create a lot of barriers in my life, and it ultimately culminated in a pretty big meltdown, which. You know, I'll, I'll get to. So the beginning 
of my story is basically I grew up in what I perceive to be kind of like that Norman Rockwell type of um, environment. I had the nuclear family, two parents, marriage intact, wonderful sister, had great friends, upper middle class, you know, raised in upper middle class society, got to go off to high school, college, whatever, played sports, friends, everything. And, um, and so when I found myself in the rooms of sex addiction for, you know, 30 years later, 30 plus years later, I was like, what the fuck went wrong? Mm -hmm. And I had no idea until I did some introspection. I looked back and I was really able to unpack some parts of my story that I thought were perfect. And there were just, there were all of these little minefields that were hidden in my blind spots that I just, I wasn't aware of. And, And I think there's so many other people who are out there also with unawareness and hopefully my story will maybe cause people to, to enlighten some of their awareness so they can make some changes if necessary. Yeah. So, well, I think that's, uh, real, to stop you there, I think that's such an like, interesting thing to say because that's something else that caught on my story is that we kind of look back and we think, well, it, it wasn't, you know, I wasn't, um, I wasn't homeless. I wasn't, you know, my parents, you know, didn't yeah. abuse drugs or you look at these things that you, you know, you think are qualifiers for, for maybe, you know, like a, a real tragic use, but the truth is it's all relative. Like it's, it's right. like one, it's such an important thing to understand that everyone suffers trauma and, and it's all like, it's relative. It doesn't matter if it looks as bad as the next guy's it's, you know, pain is pain is pain. Um, anyway, sorry, just wanted to interject that. Please. You know, that, that is huge. Um, cause I, I had that same story in my mind. It was like, Oh, well I was never, you know, abused by a priest or I was never abused by an adult or I never had some sort of whatever, right? right. And it's because I have those things and I clearly can't have problems. Right. And the point of trauma, you know, I think the way that it's, it's perceived right now is trauma is this, is this one really pungent event, like in time where maybe you were raped or abused or whatever. But most trauma is kind of like that trickle effect of just a cumulative effect of crap caking on over a long period of time. Yeah. That's how most people experience trauma. That's how I experienced mine. And I never looked at it that way because it just didn't fit the model of what was out there in the world. Right. That's right. Such a good point. So, you know, I I think the first real major insight that I had to unpack, like my relationship with sexuality was what were my two biggest influences on how I perceive sexuality? The first were my parents and the other, the second, were, was the Catholic Church. So I grew up in a Catholic family. I went to Catholic school. I was an altar boy, youth group, did the whole thing. Like I said, I was never abused by anyone inside of those contexts. But I knew from a very early age that I was very sexually driven, right? Like you watch movies on HBO or like you stumble across your cousin's Playboy magazines and things are happening in your pants. You don't know what's going on. And I'm like, okay, I... Like I respond to women, but, and not at the time I didn't say it that way, but that, like, I knew there was some sort of response there. Impulse was strong. Yeah. Right on. Like there was a really strong impulse. I had no idea what it was about, but like with my parents, like we'd be watching a movie together or we'd be watching TV together. And then a commercial would come on that had some sort of like sexual over overture. And I remember my mom would just always make this noise. She'd make that, you know, like that. Like, oh, this should be. <laughs> yes, they do. I know the yeah. click. <laughs> yeah, then, uh, and then my dad would be like, ah, oh, it's just awful. <laughs> and, you know, and then like if it was a movie, they'd fast forward through it. They'd tell me to close my eyes. And so it, they banned me from watching MTV. So it was just like, okay, sex is bad. 
Yep. You know, sex is wrong. It's evil. It's gross. And then in the Catholic church, you know, sex is, is like, you know, if you're doing it extramaritally, it's damnation, it's hell. It's yep. there's punitive, real life punitive effects for this stuff. And here I am like a totally under-equipped child with these strong impulses and knowing that it's wrong. Yep. Uh, good combo. You know? Yeah. And boom, all of a sudden there's a part of me that's weird or perverted or wrong or, you know, words that I didn't really have available to me, but other than maybe I'm bad. Yeah. Bad. Yeah. Right. Guilt's mm-hmm. bad. Guilt, bad. And so there's like, there begins the isolating behavior. Mm-hmm. And so, but again, the impulses are strong. And so, you know, any chance I had to like watch a movie where there'd be, you know, where there'd be a pair of tits or there'd be, you know, like a, a Victoria's Secret catalog in the mail that I'd be able to get to before my, my mom did, you know, you'd take that. And so I was feeding that fire. And at the same time, knowing I had to be like, it was just the fear was growing. Yeah. And what was the fear of? Being found out? Oh, yeah. Being, okay. Yeah. So being found out could be God would condemn me, my parents would disown me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Big stuff. And what about with your peers? Okay. So the peer thing, if we, if we kind of move the story forward a little bit, then, then you get to junior high school-ish, which is when I changed from Catholic school to public school, which was <laughs> one of the hugest events in my life, right? Yeah. Catholic school small class, 20 kids, you know, smartest kid in the class. I could, I was the best athlete. If I went out with the, if I wanted to go out with the girl, she would say, yes, I go to public school class is now 150. Um, no longer the smartest at all. No longer the best athlete. First girl I asked out said, no, <laughs> just, well, you know, little fish in a big, yeah. wasn't racking up a lot of wins there. And I just, I totally lost my identity. And oh, oh, by the way, the other thing I forget, I failed to mention was early on in my life, 100% of my self-worth was dependent upon external validation. Mm -hmm. Validation from parents, validation from grades, validation from achievements on the sport field, uh, validations from the church, you name it, adults, authority figures. And as long as those things were going okay, then I I was in good shape. Right. But it was such an unsteady foundation. I never felt safe. Yeah. And, mm. you know, and like if any one of those things, like an 87 on your score, or if like you struck out to lose a game, I felt like my world, I felt internally, literally like I was like dying. Oh, I, I know the feeling. Yeah. Right? Totally identify with that. Mm-hmm. And Holly, you asked me to, to kind of, you know, look in on um, Glennon, uh, Melton's work. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and you know, one thing she said was, was awesome. It's like addiction is a place where extremely sensitive people go to avoid pain or love. Yeah. And yeah. I really connected with that because, okay, now, now I'm like this 13 year old kid in a brand new school where all of my identity has been stripped from me. And I feel like an outsider and I, I was just so sensitive. And I also had this secret that I had to hide and I had no idea what to do with it. So when I stumbled across this thing called masturbation, um, <laughs> <laughs> the way I stumbled across it was like, you know, my parents had uh, that the movie White Men Can't Jump. There was a scene. 
<laughs> Leslie yeah. Snipes and Woody Harrelson were <laughs> you? That's such a good movie. <laughs> F- F- so Rosie Perez, if you're out there, you were you were my very first semi conscious. <laughs> Rosie oh Perez? Huh? <laughs> I said Rosie Perez. Rosie Perez. <laughs> That's very That's random. It is fascinating. <laughs> I don't know why it's fascinating, but Ro- yeah, but it is. So I have a soft place enough for Rosie. <laughs> So you, so you accidentally found out about masturbation. That's well, it. How old were you? 12, 13. Yeah. Okay. Just like rewinding the tape and playing, rewinding to play. And all of a sudden, like, the, you know, yep. like, bang, this feeling happens. And I'm like, what the fuck was that? And, you know, everything changed from that point on. Mm-hmm. And what I found was, like, that was a way for me to just escape from all of the anxiety, all of the stress, all of the whatever. Like when I was in that moment in my fantasy, it was like nothing else existed. And it was just this pure state of bliss and oblivion. And, um, how the the reason why I got around to this story is because, or maybe Laura, I don't know who asked it, but it was like, it, it was when I discovered masturbation, I also knew that it was an incredibly stigmatized thing. Because at school, when kids were talking about masturbation, it was like you would you would look at the kid and say, "Oh, I bet that kid masturbates." But he That's jacks off a lot. He jacks off his room a lot. <laughs> <laughs> that fucking guy, you know, he definitely. Do. Oh my god, yeah, it's so true. I can picture like making the motion with your hand, like, oh yeah, it's off. yeah. It's totally. It's really different with women, I think, because um, we don't accuse each other of masturbating. Um, but also. <laughs> I was like the first time I found out that other people did it. I was so shocked. I was just incredibly shocked about it. Like other women did it. Um, yeah, it's a weird thing. It's weird. Yeah, totally. It's a weird. Yeah, it's such a weird. It, it, well, it's it was not a weird, weird thing. It's a. It's weird. All the stuff that we've put around it. Exactly. Exactly. Because well, well. So so then there's another thing now that I have to hide and and like be deathly afraid of because if I get found out. Right. Like that's just another thing Um, until, you know, so, so that, again, that was another secret and it became kind of like, you know, when you're a kid who has no one else to turn to and you don't know who to talk to about it, you just, you just go at it on your own and do the best you can with it. And so it just became this, it just became this numbing coping mechanism that I did in isolation and silence. And then the internet came out. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! How old are you? Because you're you're like our age. You're like 30, 30, Seven. 37. Yeah. Okay. Oh my god. Yeah. So yeah. 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 So this wow. was like AOL dial-up. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the struggle is real, kids. Yeah, I know. I can only imagine. I was never trying to stream videos, and I was very frustrated. So I can only imagine. <laughs> Well, I'll tell you what, I mean, it's, I consider myself extremely fortunate because we can get to this later. There's a whole new breed of people who are coming into the room, into the, um, you know, looking for sex addiction counseling and therapy because they've been raised on streaming high access, easy access porn, Yeah, you know, anywhere, anytime for free, where Mm. back in the day, it was like, I remember the first pair of tits picture that I got took me like it was I was 16 years old I was talking I love to a that woman. you say tits by the way it shocks me every time you say it it really does 
What? It's the first time. It's the first time. I think it's the first, first time we've ever said tits on the show. Mm-hmm. You, you know why? It's weird. When, 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 because what we're talking about, it's, it's authentic to this conversation. That's yeah. not how I, you know what I mean? It's like, do you, yeah, to your paramour, do you say your tits Holly, look really good quick. tonight? Yeah. Holly, <laughs> Holly, really quick, you're super loud. Am I? Yeah. No, no. Just so maybe we don't have to, like, um, hold but, on, hold on. Let me change it real quick. No, but I mean, okay. is that my question? Is is that what you use um, when you're talking when to you're like, a woman that you're in a relationship with, with? A woman that you love. <laughs> Show me your. No, tits. not at all. Not at all. And you know, okay. like as the words are coming out of my mouth, I almost felt like, do I do I change what I'm about to say? But like one no. of the things this whole conversation was for me to, to just come out raw and, and say things the way that I yeah, I normally no, don't. I'm not saying it. It's just I have to take note of it because it's never been said on the show before. It's never. It's never a word that I hear outside. I mean, Mm-mm. it's very like our age and yeah. um, sort of like the internet. Inter- like it just makes sense for this story. It's also it's just yeah. a great word. <laughs> it's, uh, well, I'm so it, glad you, know, you said that, Laura. <laughs> I think it highlights like the, just kind of the, the, I don't know, like these silos Oh, yeah, I get it. I think it also more. highlights the objectification of it. it to me, that's yeah. what I see. It's like it's not a woman; it's tits. You know, yes. <laughs> right? And that's exactly exactly what it was. Because she, okay, so I was 16 years old, and this woman was way older than me. She was probably like in her mid, probably how old we are right now. And and I like talked to her for six months, and then she finally sent me this picture, and it took like. It took like four minutes to download, you know, it was like one gray line at a time. And I'm like, I think that's a tit. It's, I know it's a tit. There's a nipple. And it was so difficult to get, which I'm thankful for now yeah. because, oh my God, I can only imagine what I would have been like if it was under today's conditions. But, but, but then now, now I'm, I'm able to escalate my addiction. The addiction was, um, isolated in my room by myself with the Victoria's Secret magazine. And now I'm online talking to semi real people. And how old are you? How old are you when this is happening? Started around 15, 16 years old. Okay. Right. Now you're, now I'm connected to the world and there are these older women who are like, who are sharing these stories with me. And by the way, in my real life, like in my real life, I was so, I was so innocent. Like I, I, I ended up, I never ended up losing my virginity until I was 20 years old. Huh. And all of the stuff that I did with like, with girls at that time in my school was super innocent, like kissing and whatever. I, I, I had a girlfriend when I was 18 years old, you know, she was a sophomore, I was a senior and it was like, the stuff between her and I was really sweet. It was very sweet. And we never ended up sleeping together, but you know, we did everything besides that. And it was, it was sweet. And yet I had this like totally other dark, weird world where I'd be online talking with women who would share all of their stories with me about what they were doing and sending me their pictures. So like there was such a divide between my When you're with this, when you're with this girl, okay. When you're with this girlfriend, um, are your, what are your thoughts around sex with her? Are they, would you consider it like, I hate using the word normal, but would you consider them to be like, just like a normal expression of like your affection for her? And it's like different than this other thing 
or were you purposely uh, like avoiding having that blur? I'm I'm just really curious, yeah. to, like how you manage that. Yeah, I'm gonna, so that's a that's a phenomenal question. At that that point in time in my life, um, I was afraid to have sex because of the Catholic Church influence. I thought that that by having premarital sex that it was going to like you know hurt me in the afterlife. So that's why I didn't do anything with her. But I did at that point in time, I had this very real thought in my mind of the, like the whole Madonna and whore complex, right? Like my mm. girlfriend is the one who's supposed to be, you know, the innocent one. We do these things. She's an upstanding girl. She's a sweet girl. And then all this other stuff had to be done and found and sought out somewhere else. Interesting. Oh my God. Okay. Yeah. Does that make sense? Totally. Yeah. And it's really hard to hear on some level as a woman. Um, to be honest, because it's like that thing of where we divide women into, into categories. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And that's why you see, it's like, you, know, you see all the men are like dying over these porn stars and, you know, and, and, and then they also condemn the same porn stars in public and they want this quote unquote, um, virgin, you know? Yeah. And I, I but but that was like what I'd been trained to believe. That's what I, I, I focused on. And I believed that for a long period of time. And I could see that over the course of, you know, if, if I were to move forward, that, yeah, all of the relationships that I sought out were like the outwardly sweet, um, innocent ones, the, the girl you could bring home to mom, quote, et cetera, et cetera. And I would be increasingly bored. In, in, the, in, in those types of relationships and increasingly interested in like this weird, you know, porny type of shit online and trying to find women who would engage with me in that stuff. Yeah. And, and that created a, a huge divide. Not only that, but also like, you know, the reason why it's so hard for, for, for you to hear, Holly, it's like categorizing women. Like you can't, like you have to fit into this one box and then you have to fit into that box and it was incredibly sexist and stupid, but I just didn't have any other model for Natalie. No, well, it's also yeah. if you're if you're in this one box, you can't be in the other one. So I mean, that's what it, that's the fear, or the it, that's why it's hard to hear because it's like if you can't if you're going to be in this box, you can't be in the like sexy, porny, like you know, I want a fucky box. Well, right. it also Vice it also versa. pushes you into putting up a into women putting up a facade to you know yeah. to and hiding the parts of them that might be seen as whorish or mm-hmm. or um you know like slutty or um it was just it was interesting. I had a conversation um with a guy I was dating uh, like a couple months ago in Italy, and he was talking about the difference between whores and bitches, um and just like they call prostitutes, he called prostitutes bitches. And he said it was a normal thing in Italy. And he said, they're different than you. And it was just this like whole conversation of like, no, like, no. Right. Mm. But this is, but the, this the, is a, you have to like classify. This is a guy in Italy, right? Yeah. Yeah. But it, uh, yes, exactly. But I'm just saying, it's just one of those things that, you know, like Italian or not, it still is just this, it's like this thing of you, you know, like the good girl versus the bad girl. Right. Um, anyway. Yeah. It's, listen, it's, it's a horrible, um, prevailing belief. And that, that is one of the big things that's out there today. That's one of the things I see with many men that I talk to about this stuff. And I don't, I don't come out to every man that I meet around what, you know, my sex addiction, 
but we, we dance around the issue and, and, and most men have a prevailing belief that there, that there are these categories. Now we're jumping around here and I'll pull it back, but I, I will say the punchline to my, my story is that I found the complete opposite. Like once I've gone to get help for this, once I got my, once I've done a lot of introspection on myself and once I changed my relationships with women, I've had these incredible incredible, meaningful, romantic relationships with women who are extremely uh, ambitious, well-regarded, beautiful, um, well-respected leaders who also have that naughty, dirty, want to be fucked, I want to fuck them, you know, side to that. So there is no categorization. It's, you know, I would say some of the women that most of the, actually, let's put it this way. Most of the women that I've dated over the last three or four years since I've been in recovery, been working on myself, have been what I just described. If yeah. I allow for that space of you know, comfort for them to show that side to me. Comfort on your side? No, no, no. Like for, I, I, I find that, the, that initially the woman is hesitant to show that naughty side because Mm -hmm. of fear of judgment of fear of being categorized or stigmatized. And there's like a holding back period. And I totally get that. And then I usually end up being, you know, the first mover and and sharing what I've gone through and, you know, some of the stuff that we've talked about, I'll be very honest about it. And -hmm. as soon as that happens, then it's like, boom, this woman emerges. That's like fierce and wild and has these fantasies that like I could never imagine. Mm-hmm. And, and it's amazing. I love it because I don't, for, first of all, just the, the awareness that like one person can have so many different parts to them that are like, that's just exciting to explore. Yeah. And the other part of it is like, I don't, now I'm not pigeonholing people and thinking that if I'm with one person, then I have to be the good person with that one. And then over on this other side, seek something out that I really want. Right. You get to be integrated too. And yes, along with the person you're with. So I want to, I want to hold on. My head is exploding. Can we, I don't want to move away from this. Okay. So first of all, like, I don't like it being like, like for some reason, naughty for me makes me like my whole body have this visceral reaction to it Mm. because that's, you just described me, um, which, but not, but, maybe me in the past, me in the now is a little bit, a lot more liberated when it comes to this stuff. Um, but there is, but there is this, like this idea of like, um, uh, though like, it's like the, what is that movie that I never want to watch? 50 shades of gray, (laughs) right? Where we have this like repressed sexuality and in the bedroom, we just want to be subordinated. And, um, I, I don't know. Anyway, I think like, it's on, I think on many levels, like, uh, there's, oh my God, I don't even know what to say. There's, I feel like we could probably have a whole podcast about the comment you just said, but I do want to say just because we're being honest here, I don't think that like, I like you, you saying that part is naughty. Like, I don't think that there's like a naughty side of me and that's like me, like being real sexually, um, in a relationship with a man and telling him what I want and telling him what turns me on means I'm naughty mm-hmm. or that I have fantasies means I'm naughty. I think it means, um, I know what I like, um, and, Mm. um, I'm able to communicate it. So I just wanted to respond to that just because that was like really hard to hear for some reason that it's classified as naughty. Anyway, I don't know. I I love that. I love, I love that you shared that. And there, there, there is something, 
that I would, I would love to unpack on that, especially after we get off this conversation, but because you're right, like there is, there is still a stigma attached to naughty. Yeah. Right. Versus like, I know what I like. And so for example, like if we're getting real here, I had a girlfriend, like one of her, her biggest fantasy was to have a threesome with two men, right? Like that was her biggest fantasy. And just like how men, for the most part, their biggest fantasy is two women. And for whatever reason, that's not naughty. When a man wants two women, that is naughty if a woman wants it. Yeah. At least the way it's categorized right now. And that's a double standard. So I, I totally, I totally get what you're, you're saying there. And perhaps there's, there's more room for enlightenment on my end and others. And, uh, you know, well, it brings it into this, like, I mean, naughty is like rule breaking. It's like rule breaking or being bad. It's like, it's associated with being bad. And I don't think there's anything bad with knowing what turns you on sexually. Like, I just don't, I think that's like the shell. I think from a woman's perspective, that's one of the things I like for me personally, it's some, one of the things I've had to overcome, which is like the shame that's around actually asserting myself and what I want. Um, and I've like, in the last couple of years, it's just, been one of those things like the, you know, my behavior, like my sexual behavior with men, um, I've become a lot more comfortable in it. I've had to break out of this like, um, naughty girl, like idea, Mm. like that, that wanting what I want and actually vocalizing what I want. Um, like there's something wrong with it. Naughty, naughty to me feels wrong. Like it's Mm. wrong. Um, and I don't think it's wrong anyway. Okay. That's all I've got to say on that. I just had to say it. I love that. Thank you. Laura, do you want to redirect us <laughs> back to the story? Well, yeah, just pick up where you were um, in your timeline. Okay. Um, so I think we were on online seducing women. Okay. So then it was you know, everything like for, for, for me and maybe other people who are listening to this can, can, can relate to the fact that like everything was an escalation. So you kind of, hit this one point where talking to someone online is just not enough. Now you need to meet them. And, you know, eventually when I got into my twenties, so it wasn't until like I'd actually lost my virginity in a very sweet and normal way with a girlfriend. Um, then I started to say, okay, now it's time to meet some of these women I've been talking to for a long time. And the majority of them were older women. And so for example, like when I was 21, 22, they were 43, 47, you know, in some cases like late thirties as well. But those were, that was a big age difference. Always was a thing for me. Like Um, you wanted it or you were attracted to older women. Yeah. Do you know why? Well, I didn't. And then, you know, doing some further unpacking uh, of, of my upbringing, what I learned was, so one of the things I, I, I guess I skipped over when I was talking about my home life and relationship is that my parents were never, in love, at least when I was around, right? So they were, they, they, they didn't express together. love like in a way, or you, no. you know now, okay, go ahead. No, I mean, like I always knew that they just like, they were kind of together, but like, I never saw them kiss or hold hands. They didn't sleep in the same room gotcha. together. Um, and, you know, they had excuses for all of those things, but like they were never a unit. I could always divide them if I wanted to get a friend to sleep over. And one said, no, the other would say, yeah, I could play them off each other. I knew all that stuff. So, um, I never witnessed and saw them in love at all. And that was my, uh, my model for growing up. But my mother um, would invest a lot of time and energy into me. And she would, she would confide in me about the failings of my father inside of their relationship. 
So here I am like a very young kid again, like seven, eight years old. And my mom, you know, best intentions, she wasn't trying to do anything manipulative, but like she would just unload this stuff on me. Like your father is not attentive. He doesn't tell me no I'm beautiful. way. Okay. No so this way. happens a lot. This, this happens a lot and drives a lot of people into the, this happens with fathers and their daughters. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not even surprised. Like I heard all of that stuff. Really? Both sides. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It happened. It, it, it's called covert incest, emotional incest. It's where, you know, one parent, one parent makes their child a surrogate spouse. Really? And yeah. Because so for example, like my mom's needs weren't being met by, by my father, then where did she, where, where could she go? I'm the man of the house now. And what ended up happening was I became, so th- this is actually a central part to my story. I can't believe I skipped over it, but um, I became very astute and very aware of how to listen, mm-hmm. comfort, anticipate someone's needs and to be there for them. But like as a child to bear the burden of, of like wow. an adult's emotional weight, it, like th- there was just this engulfment. Ugh. Well, and this like it kind of fits in with your higher achieve your, your high achiever self. Like you found you see a place where you can go and be of service, right? And you can do well. Mm-hmm. And it's just I don't know. I see that aligned a lot with that. Yeah, built a built a an entire life around this. Built an entire life and career around my ability to to like anticipate others' needs, to be there for them. But what? But but the the dark side to it was that I felt completely engulfed by the emotional responsibility. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I remember there was like one very specific moment in my childhood where I did something to betray my mother's trust or something. And she just had a meltdown. Like, like I, nothing. My mom is a very strong woman. I'd never seen anything like this. Like she was just crying on a couch, inconsolable tears, snot, like just, I'd never seen anyone break down and especially not my mother who was like the strongest. And when that happened, I remember thinking, this is my fault. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that made me um, fear emotional intimacy because of the burden. Totally. Of so you think about this. It's like wow. I these amazing skills of how to, to be there for a person. And with women especially, I, I can listen. I know how to be there emotionally supportive. My mother trained me, you know, to do that and to do it in an effective way. And I, I actually genuinely love doing that. But at the same point in time, my boundaries were so blurred that I'd let someone in so far that I would then become responsible for them. Yep. And, and then as soon as like the burden became too heavy, then I'd want out. And it's just like, <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. I can't relate to this. I can't relate to this at all. <laughs> Holy shit. So it, it, what it sounded like to me, what you just described as codependency. No. I mean, is that, is that how you understand um, it or not that it matters the label, but I'm curious because wait, between him and his mom, just the, the exchange you just, uh, or the, the, what you just described just now. What? What I would, yeah, I mean, labels, I have a hard time with also, I know, but I, know. I would say, I would say, I would, I attract codependence, mm-hmm. right? So that I put sense. up, so yeah. I put up this, I put up this perfect version of myself that's got everything together and, you know, that my shit's, 
my shit doesn't stink. And I, I attract um, women who are looking for that, someone who's strong and who's, you know, got his stuff together, who's emotionally developed and that kind of thing and, and who can listen. And so then I've, I've, I've developed these patterns over and over and over again over time where it's just like, that is my form for getting someone in. And by the way, when I go back to, like, I was talking earlier on about how my validation, like my whole life was built yeah. around external validation. For me, there's no stronger form, no stronger form of external validation than female sexual attention. Yeah. Interesting. You know what I mean? It's like yeah. if, if, if someone were to say you could be a millionaire for the rest of your life or if you could have like female sexual validation for the rest of your life, if I'm purely basing it on nothing um, purpose-driven, if it's just like right. my addiction, whatever, then it's women every time. Yeah. Every time. And so I, I can be, you know, when I'm tired or bored or lonely or isolated, whatever it is, it's like that's what I go to to snap me out. Yeah. And some of that is, I think, you know, there, there is, it's amazing to be aware of that. That is something I think that exists in most, most men. Um, but it's like the, the, the degree to which you rely on it for your, for your everything existence yeah, that becomes yeah. problematic. So I have a question and then we'll sort of keep drawing back, but can you, you know, now, uh, do this dance with someone? Can you meet a woman, make yourself available to her, listen to her, take her in without trying, without manipulating it? Yeah. Great question. That, so the answer is it's still a work in progress because I don't know exactly where the lines are for me. Yeah. I will tell you for sure that I'm way better than I ever was before. And it really starts with very early on, like if there's going to be any kind of enduring interest, then I disclose very quickly um, these things that we're talking about right now that Wait, I'm in recovery. You, okay, okay. So you say that. Yes, I okay. do. Yeah. So have you had, I mean, my that was kind of my question, which was, quote unquote, how the fuck can you have a relationship? Um, <laughs> I, we were talking about this and it's like, like food, right? It's not like alcohol where you can just abstain, yeah. um, where you can just, where it's just as easy as, no, it's not like alcohol where you, where it's black and white. It's like food. Um, it's relationships with people. It's sex. Um, it's how you procreate. So how, how do you, what is, what, what is the definition of a healthy relationship to you? Like, how do you <laughs> use this responsibly? That's the million dollar question. Holly, I mean, it's, it is very difficult for me and for many others I know who are dealing with this. I haven't, I can't say I've cracked the code yet. I've gotten, let me just tell you where I've had some wins and like where I'm still seeking. So my last real relationship ended as a result of me, this ended in 2013. It resulted as, um, being caught for cheating Mm -hmm. on her. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was a whole other messy backstory beyond just the cheating. Um, she was married at the time too. And, um, but the long story short was since I've left that relationship with her, which was about three years ago. And by the way, she just got remarried yesterday. You talk about, wow, wow. That is crazy. How we're talking to that. I don't know. It's just, it's crazy. Um, in those three years, I have not had a lasting relationship 
I've gone periods where like for nine months, I was completely abstinent from everything. Yeah. Like by choice. By choice. Mm -hmm. So for three years, I over three years now, I've not looked at porn um, at all. That was easy for me to give up. Very easy for me to give up. Actually, I, I haven't really felt the draw to that. Some people that's like their hardest thing. And when you asked the question earlier about like those, the relationship you have with the woman who's actually in front of you, the real life human being versus mm-hmm. like this online weirdness. When I was engaged in both with porn and a real woman, then it absolutely 1000% affected my ability to be intimate with someone. Yeah. Like, cause everything was so sensationalized in the porn arena. Yeah. yeah. And, and like a real woman just like it, 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 like I was numb. I had to do, you know, like you had to do, um, like you had to take it up a notch. Yeah. Right? Like you did this fantasies. It just couldn't be the two of you. And that's why when I talk to a lot of my female friends, they're like, God, all this sex is so disconnected that I'm having. These guys want to mm-hmm. like, or, okay. So like, these guys want to come on my face. They want to have anal sex. They want to, you name it. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's like, the, because it's a whole generation that's grown up on porn where every woman online is like ready for like getting it up the butt and they're ready for uh, all this stuff and anything, it's anything. So I, yeah, did I, you have, I had, a, I, I, I had a friend actually that was, um, that was dealing with uh, porn addiction and I, uh, he couldn't have normal sex. Like he couldn't, he actually like couldn't perform um, when it was just, when it was just regular. Um, I mean, is that, so for you, like, I mean, was that, did you just not have it or like, how did you get over that? Or is that too personal? No, it's fine. There was the porn thing was, was not as big of a thing for me because I found that my pattern involved some form of intimacy, meaning I was always way more interested in connecting with a person, even if it was under the guise of just getting my sexual needs met versus like these bunnies who were dancing around on a screen that I would never have a chance to talk to. Hmm. Um, But, but yes, it did like watching enough of that stuff. There were a handful of times where I had to make an excuse, like not to sleep with my girlfriend um, because like I'd been too tired beating off all day. Um, yeah. and I knew that I wasn't going to, I didn't have any energy left or a, a big thing is fantasizing about someone else while you're with your partner, right? Like yeah. you're off thinking about what you watched earlier or you're, as you're watching porn, you're like, I'm going to think about this later, right? <laughs> to get me through this or whatever, to get me off. And that's why I think, you know, I hear this, this feedback from women that it's just so disconnected. There's no human yeah. element to it. As soon as I, as soon as I gave up porn within like two weeks, it wasn't, it was, I mean, maybe even sooner than that, it was like the flood of feelings and emotions and like the smell of a woman, you know, just like being able to, to smell her hair, which was previously unavailable or her skin, you know, or just how like her fingers felt on my body, which previously wouldn't have even registered all wow. those little micro sensations started coming back and it was like, it was amazing. It was kind of like, you know, when she would put her hand on me, electric currents would go through my body. Whereas before numb to porn, it was just nothingness. That's yeah, so like a resensitization. Yeah. 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 Okay. 
I feel so, like we need to finish a story, though, because I want to understand sort of what the, the end looked like. But he didn't finish answering the question about having a normal relationship now or how oh, that's yeah. gone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so let, so do it, go ahead whichever way you want to. Like, you can finish a, the yeah. question about a normal relationship, and let's, let's trace back to the end of your story. Yeah, I would say this. I'm, I'm far more equipped, and I feel far more confident that I can have a normal relationship because, like, I've dated. The, 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 the women that I've attracted over the last three years have been incredible, incredible, um, beautiful women who I admire on one level or another. And it just hasn't worked out for one reason or another, either, you know, it's just, it's not working for me. It's not working for them. But what's happened in every single one of those engagements is very early on, I'm very upfront with what I'm dealing with, what led me here. I I share some of the ugly shit about, you know, having cheated and that's what led me to recovery mm-hmm. and it's, it's actually opened up a very strong foundation of trust early on. And it's allowed them to share shit with me that they felt very uncomfortable or judged by in previous relationships. So I would say the foundations I formed in my new relationships have been much quicker. And by the way, my biggest fear when I left my last relationship as a sex addict for the first time, I I thought that I would never be able to attract another woman who would want to be with me if she knew that I was a sex addict. Yeah. I was going to ask, has anyone ever said, nope, can't deal with that? Shockingly. Not even close. Wow. It's, it's usually, and, and I have to be very careful how I say this, but it, it, it's, it's been, it's almost had the opposite effect. And what yeah. I mean by that is like, because I don't know, at least in the relationships that I've gone into with these women, they are so not used to a man, like just sharing this stuff with them and being honest and authentic and open about their shit and being humble about it because like I, I have not perfected this nor, nor will I ever, I'm just, I'm always doing my best is they've thanked me and it's allowed us to establish a a good rapport. And I, and I say, I have to share that carefully because for anyone who's listening, that can easily turn into manipulation. Right. You know what I mean? It's Mm -hmm. like, Oh, well here's, here's, here's a way for someone to think I'm so great because of how hard I've worked. And Like I've left a path and trail of destruction behind me. Like I've, I've done a lot of fucking stupid shit and I am mm-hmm. not, you know, and, and I, and I haven't figured everything out yet either. And I make that very clear to say that, um, I could fuck up again and I could hurt you. And I, I want to be very honest about that and sure to give that person a choice, which is never what I did before. Um, mm-hmm. And then let them opt in or out based on what's best for them. That's, that's what's been working. And I just haven't found someone and someone hasn't found me where we've really lit it up together to really keep the, keep a relationship enduring. Yeah. But I would say the answer to your question is like, can you, how do you have a relationship or, or can you do it and not be, not manipulate or have you had successful relationships based on what you just said is the answer is yes. I mean, though, you know, not just because something maybe hasn't lasted or, held on for a long period of time. I mean, I am, it's kind of heartening to know that that's been the response and surprising. I'm not surprised. Well, I'm also on the (laughs) other side. I'm not surprised because how would you react? Right. I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised because 
the part of me that's not surprised is I, one of my friends is like, you know, the once my friend told me that the way to the easiest way to like fuck a girl is to be honest about things and be vulnerable. <laughs> and I'm like, OK, right. so there's part of us that are like, oh, he's going to be honest and vulnerable. Oh, yeah. Right. And that's why I asked the manipulation question, too. It, it all plays so it is complicated, man. Yes. It all plays so tricky it's so tricky together all of these these things that we that we do and who we attract and what we're up to and ugh. that's so true you can easily um uh, because because you do so much work on yourself when you're when you're you're doing introspection that 99 percent of people will never do on themselves so you're, you're you're aware but you're also if you're not humble about it you can easily turn that into manipulation and getting your own needs mm-hmm. met and so it's it is a dance mm-hmm. and I, I constantly have to check myself to make sure like I understand where am I coming from as I'm sharing this? Is it really coming from a mm. I'm trying to keep her with me? I'm trying to keep her interested. I'm trying to, you yeah. know, or is it I'm giving her a choice and she can choose what to do with this information or not? Well, I think it doesn't differ too much from the stuff we talked about yesterday, Laura, which is like the whole the whole path of coming into, I imagine for you, the work is coming into a place where you're okay no matter what's going on with with your partner, meaning like getting back to a place where you're so um, you're so honest with yourself and, and you're okay no matter what happens, whatever the outcome, because to me, it feels like it's outcome-based, just like our stuff is outcome-based, right? Like your happiness depends on this relationship and how it's going and what, how she feels about you, like what you're getting out of it um, and working to a place where you're you're coming together with somebody to not to get your needs met, you're coming together with somebody to create something more. Yeah. Um, I imagine that's like, it's not, even though it's much different and it feels like my head, I mean, my head's tired talking about it just because it's so, um, it's so, um, dicey and, um, not dicey is not the word. It's more like, it's just, there's so many, um, uh, 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 landmines I feel like and, and, um, and twists and, um, but I don't see it as much different that the outcome you're working towards is much different than the outcome Laura and I are working towards, um, which is just to be okay no matter what and to find somebody to, um, where like, uh, you know, where, where you're creating, not where you're, you're, um, plugging. That's right. I, I think, and I think it's, I don't, I don't think that my challenges are different than, are that different than, than people who don't have an addiction in the sense that I just think right. mine are more amplified. Right. You know, my, like it's, it, it, I think everyone wants to get needs met. Everyone's afraid of being alone or being rejected or and whatever. And everyone manipulates to get and those needs met. And everyone manipulates to get those <laughs> things. Exactly. So, but, but it's just that my, it, it, my drivers are more amplified because I've spent an entire lifetime like, building that muscle. But at the same time, my awareness is also amplified because I've had to, you know, I've, I've had to, to take a look at this and I, you know, I reached a point where like, I just well, the pain continue. got too great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I also wonder if you, if it almost then overcorrects, right. Where you're so yeah. aware and, and you're, you're a sex addict and you are now in this place of, um, of, uh, almost like lo- of, of locking yourself into a story or not locking yourself into a story, but almost overcompensating and, yeah. and that in itself becoming its own thing. Oh, without question. I mean, like I was saying before, when I went nine months, pure abstinence, I'm talking like I 
didn't watch porn. I didn't masturbate. I didn't, I barely, well, I think I went on two dates in nine months. And, um, and, and yeah, it was kind of like this, I don't know. I, I made up this story that unless I find the woman of my dreams, unless I'm, you know, really she walking the path. In front of me. <laughs> yeah. And she will, she will appear if I do these things. And I, and I sleep on the one side of the bed where, you know, I would be and then leave her side open. Like, cause I read about that and I heard it's supposed to happen that way. And like none of that shit worked for me. So my life became really fucking boring and lame. Yeah. And the first time I kissed a woman, I like, honestly, I, the first time I kissed a woman after that, and we were like laying on her floor and her oh, breast came out, her breast came out. I came in my pants. Shut up. <laughs> God, oh. like her breast came out accidentally, or um, like purpose? No, I pulled it out. I oh, mean, I okay, out. okay. Yeah, yeah. But uh, but but the other part was unexpected and unplanned, and oh. it just it was like, what the fuck am I doing? I mean, part yeah. of it was kind of funny. Like I had to just look at it, and <laughs> I, I made up a great excuse to leave. I was like, you know what? I think we've gone as far as we should tonight. <laughs> Put my shirt down over my pants, and I was like, I'll see you again. Oh God. <laughs> Being oh, a human God. is so fucking weird. It's so, it's so hard. <laughs> no, so we haven't really. Okay, so let's go back and let's kind of talk about how it progressed for you and what it looked like because I still don't think anybody listening to this understands what you would say sex addiction is. Um, we talked about kind of the progression of it. Um, we didn't really talk about what it looked like and why it became unmanageable, why it was painful, why it was bottomy, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, why don't you go with that? All right, cool. Um, I think I think the, the the biggest challenge with sex addiction, at least what I've seen with the people that are that are in the rooms, people I've sponsored, and my my peers, is that we never really felt like we were addicts. You know, there there is this universal acceptance that like if you're if you're out as a man having a ton of sex, then you are you're a player, like you're That's applauded. Yeah, and by the way, it's also a very it's a very isolating thing like when you're out drinking you're drinking with other people in many cases maybe you're out you're drinking home alone but like with sex and sex addiction you're, you're like you're always by yourself or with like one other isolated person so it's very easy to hide and not really like there, there's a very difficult basis of comparison you know like to, to understand like what you're doing and is it is it that much different than other people yeah um that's interesting i wouldn't have thought of that yeah thank you yeah so what did sex addiction look like for me it was like always having seven to 10 different women that at any point in time, I could just like Sunday night rolls around three hours sitting on the couch before the work week starts. I'm bored. I'm watching football, bang, text messages, would just start going out so that I could get that state change, you know, Mm. that like boredom to excitement. Some people grab a donut, you know, I would do that. Anytime I'd be stressed out, or I'd feel lonely or it didn't happen, whatever. I would fill it with, um, you know, seducing someone so that I could, I, I love this long process of seduction to then eventually culminate in a meeting that yeah. we would act out this fantasy. And then it would kind of like, as soon as that happened, then the veil would come down and I'd be like, Oh, why am I here with this person in many cases? Right. Yeah. Wow. Yep. Yep. And by the way, the backdrop of my life was I was just becoming increasingly more successful financially, getting promoted, you know, having the, the year where this all came crashing down for me was by far the most financially successful year of my life. It was 2009 and crushed my sales goal, you know, seven figures for the first time in my life. And 
And like everything that I thought that I wanted, I'd achieved career-wise. And I had a lot of great friends and family. But at the same point in time, um, I was numb. I didn't really feel good about what I've been doing. And I was like, why is this is weird? So that's when I really started to go off the rails. And, um, you know, I was like, well, maybe if I, if I live out my fantasy of having sex with a porn star. So I, I tracked down a porn star. And by the way, the porn star wasn't a, she wasn't like the typical Hollywood porn star. She was an amateur, which fits in with my pattern of like a real woman who she had sex with people that she liked on camera. And so that was like, even that distinction I could see at now looking back on the time is like, that's part of what I wanted. And I wanted her to validate me. And you, I, so amateur, not as in young, she was amateur, like porn star. She wasn't like, what does that mean? Oh, sorry. Amateur so, is young. Amateur is like not is anyway. Sorry. I won't no, answer no, no, it because I, I wasn't asked it. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So the, what an amateur porn star would be is not like a studio um, has like porn, like a Jenna Jameson is a professional porn star. But yeah. This okay. One was like she and her husband were swingers. They put up a, a website and gotcha. film her having sex with like other men. Okay. And okay. and that's an amateur. So I I, I always dr- gravitated towards that because it was like a real person who's actually having sex for joy and full like her her own pleasure. Yeah. Okay. Like, Got it. Jameson was getting paid for. Gotcha. Um, thanks for for poking me on that. And then. Um, and so for the first time in my life, like I actually said, well, maybe I will pay for something because other people do it. They say it's not so bad. I've never wanted to do it. I always thought it was wrong, but like, as my addiction escalated, I just started rationalizing more and saying, oh, this isn't so bad. Other people do it. Yeah. I ended up seeing her five or six different times for the first time in my life. I had difficulty performing and I hate using the word performing because like performing in and of itself, it's like, this is a performance. It's not like. But, but just you for couldn't easy, get an erection for early on, like like right when we started, because it was so sterile. It wasn't real. It wasn't. It, mm. it was all fabricated for me, and I I couldn't at first. And then each and time, it, like it. But that you know that was weird for me. Um, and let me just finish the. the I'll, I'll just quickly finish where this thing culminated. I ended up. Um, in a relationship with someone who was married, she very early on when we met kind of opened the door for me at the very, very beginning stages. She just let me know how unhappy she was in her relationship. And of course I used that as rationalization to pounce on it. And we ended up building a relationship together while she was going home and, you know, going to, you know, she, she went home to her husband and I was supposed to be this like faithful boyfriend but I, at the same point in time, and I, by the way, I, I, I felt like I was falling in love with her, mm-hmm. um, something I'd felt for her that I'd never felt for anyone else before yet. And I couldn't understand this. I couldn't stop sex messaging other women. I just like when I found myself alone or whatever, I just couldn't stop. I wanted to. And I used the fact that she was you know, going home to her husband as rationalization. But the bottom line is I, I didn't need that. I didn't need that rationalization. I, I, I just could not stop myself. And one I day. I want to ask more about that, but, but you yeah. can maybe tell us what it means later. What? Or what you, what you know about that behavior now that maybe you didn't then. Oh, um, it was 
what I, I guess any time that I felt any kind of emotion that was painful or boredom or yeah. lack or anything, numbness, I wanted to change my state. Yeah. And, and that just, was how you changed your state. That was your how, hit. That was my hit. There was nothing more instantaneous than getting female sexual attention back. Like a text message buzz in your pocket. Like even before reading the message, like Pavlov's dog, yeah. you know, boom, it would change. Yeah. Yeah. Your and question? I get, yeah, I, and I get that because I, I mean, we've, I think Laura and I have both done that plenty of times, especially we were just talking about this, like after removing alcohol, um, that also like male attention, right. Became, mm-hmm. um, our hit, um, on some level. And I like, I know exactly that moment of like, you don't want to feel what you're feeling. You actually pick up your phone. Um, so I get that. Um, I'm just, when one other clarification, like, how, what's the volume? I'm just curious about that. What's the volume? Like how, when you're, when you're in this relationship with this woman, like how, what is, what does it look like? It's funny. You, uh, you asked, I actually did some data on this. Of course you did. <laughs> and before I had an iPhone, I had an Android. So like there was no iMessage. And so you could actually check how many texts sent and received in a month. And I found that when I was in the throes of what well, so an average month would be, Like when I was really sober and, you know, when I was sober, um, maybe a thousand a month, like to and from. And then when I was in the throes of my addiction, five, six thousand a month. Wow. Yeah. You know, and, and, and 80% of those, I actually did the numbers on it. Like 80% of those went to, um, the, the women that I was sexually engaged with. So all of my other relationships took a back seat right? Because the mm-hmm. only people I really wanted to hear from, there'd be other tons of other text messages piling up and emails piling up from people who mattered in my life. Right. Mm-hmm. It's uh, so similar. It, did it consume you? Like, did it consume, like, even when you weren't, you know, sending four to 5,000 text messages to these women a month, right? Um, did it consume your, like, was it, like, when we talk about, when I talk about alcohol addiction, it's like, Thinking about when you're going to have your next drink, having your next drink, thinking about how much you're drinking when you're drinking it, um, like regretting how much you drank, waking up the next day feeling crappy about what you're drinking, thinking, you know, like it's just this like kind of consumptive, like obsessive thinking. Is that the same for you? Is that like um, outside of just the action of this, like of the engagement, was it just kind of like consuming? Same thing. Yeah. All the fucking time. Yeah. All the fucking time. If, if, you know, it, it was either planning something, you know, like planning an event to look forward to or, you know, it, it engaged in it then that day. I mean, you know, certain Fridays, or I'm sorry, Saturdays or Sundays, I would just sit in front of my computer all day long and, you know, I instant message people or text or be on, uh, you know, porn like all day. And then I would emerge for whatever social event that happened that night. And that's the thing. It's like a lot of a lot of people I know who, who are suffering from this stuff are extremely um, successful. You know, like, they, 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 mm-hmm. like they, they're they out there doing things and accomplishing things. And that was probably like one of the biggest problems for me was the rest of my life really looked like it was firing on all cylinders. I just kept getting more, promo- I get promoted more. And, um, but, but increasingly, you know, the, the other side, the darker side was just becoming all more consumptive, like the word that you used. So take us, yeah, so take us through, like, tours, and we, we promise we won't interrupt you, <laughs> either of us, because I want to hear, I want to get to with the unmanageability and, like, sort of what yeah. forced you to look at it. 
Well, so just like I would say 90% of the people who end up, you know, entering sex addiction, I got caught and I was, you know, she, she, we were on vacation together. First fucking day of vacation. I go to the bathroom and I come out and she's got my phone in her hand and she just read through a salacious set of text messages to this one girl, which I, I can only imagine would have been crippling for her to read. And long story short was I, I'd, I'd, I'd wondered about sex addiction years ago. I bought the book, read certain things that applied to me and other things that didn't apply to me, but I never really thought I was a sex addict. But in that moment of fear of losing my relationship, I claimed sex addiction. Mm. And I said, I will go get help primarily to save the relationship, not because I actually believed I was one. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I did, I went, I went through the, I went through the process that it was prescribed to me. And the, the thing that changed my life, probably more so than anything was this process of disclosure Disclosure was I had to write down every single transgression that I'd done and committed during our relationship and some things leading up to our relationship um, without pulling any punches. Like to her or to a sponsor? Directly to her. Okay. With the care of two therapists. I had mine, she had hers, followed by a lie detector test. Oof. Like like a legitimate dude with a, well, the guy wasn't so legit. I mean, he was a fucking weirdo, Can I ask but it was like, why did you, what? whose idea was this? So in sex addiction counseling, this is a normal course of procedure is like to get the whole is to, is to actually have an honest discussion. And the lie detector test is something that um, is typically put in because most sex addicts will lie or withhold or, keep one part of the story out mm. without it. Yep. And, um, you know, so now I'm sitting in a chair with like being strapped to the same machine that murderers and rapists and others like are, you know, they, they go through and I'm like, God, what happened to my life? But I had to write this story out, which was an unbelievable process because it was for me personally, incredibly therapeutic, mm. incredibly therapeutic to actually just, collect my thoughts, organize my thoughts, see all the shit that I'd done, count all of my partners. Um, and then to have to like to actually, before even reading it, I felt like a healing process had taken place. Yeah. But, but then the, the, the most transformative experience was I had to read this to her. There was no positioning, no manipulating. I had a lie detector test waiting for me for the first time in my life. I had to release control of an outcome. Oof. Yeah. Did she, did she, were you still together? We were. Okay. Yeah. Wow. I had to release control of an outcome, which my whole life was built around controlling things because I lost control when I was, when I changed schools way back in the day and I felt miserable and I just, I lost. So I became a control freak. Lots of control freaks out there. Like think that they can, it's just an illusion, but for the first time in my life, I, I just, I felt this sense of freedom of, this is her choice now. And she may yeah. choose to stay with me or to leave me, but like to release the fear of like, I have to, I have to achieve some sort of outcome. 
that has changed my life and has allowed me to, to take risks, to, per, you know, to, to go way bigger, to not worry about mm-hmm. failure, to, to, to be more honest and authentic with people and let them choose. Um, but yeah, I, I had to share that with her. She stayed with me. Through that recovery, I found out that um, I wasn't happy with her. She was not the right one. She had a lot of shit that she wasn't looking at and wasn't willing to look at. And so that, that was a very difficult decision for me. But I, um, you know, I had to worry about will, will another woman ever want to be with me? Mm-hmm. She was willing to stay. And I said, you know what? This just, my future just felt smaller. The thought of, of being with her and just felt like I'd always be walking on eggshells. And I ended up, um, I ended up leaving the relationship. Interesting. Three years ago. Do you, do you mean walking on eggshells because she was suspicious of you or? No, okay. no. Uh, yeah. So let me, so let me clarify that because I, I was ready to put in the work to rebuild the trust because I knew that there was a long road ahead given the, the shit that I'd done. And I'd, I'd cheated on her. I'd slept with three other women while I was with her. Uh, one of them was with the porn star, unprotected. Okay. And this is how, like, this is how fucking deluded and rationalizing you can get is because the porn star asked me to get a, um, an STD test. And I never asked her to get one because God forbid, if I asked her to get one and she said she wasn't going to get one, then it would prevent me from getting what I wanted. So I just assumed, you know, blindly covered my eyes. And so long story short, I put my, my girlfriend at risk you know, in the worst possible way. Um, but those, those were the things I had to disclose to her. And I was willing to work through building that trust. The eggshells was like in her, her life, she, um, she jumps on people for everything. And she, she's destroyed a lot of her relationships with her closest friends and her, their sister, her sister and others, because mm, you have to be perfect around her. Uh, that's the eggshells part is that you just, you can't ever be imperfect. Um, and it, yeah. it just was an ideal that I could never, I would never be able to achieve. No one can. So. Right. So that's fascinating. Thank you for, for sharing all that. I mean, that's, is it hard? Even though you talk about it in recovery in rooms, is it hard to talk about it now knowing that it's going to be heard? By a broader audience, even though you're, you're anonymous on this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's certain, like a lot of different times over the course of the, this past hour and a half where you've asked me questions where it's been like, Oh, mm. you know, like how, like how honest can I be about this? Like how detailed do I get? And there obviously is that fear of being found out, but there's obviously like, I'm very drawn to sharing this because, um, it, it, it is it is healing for me, but I also know how many other people are out there who are suffering without a yeah. fucking semblance of a clue as to what they're dealing with, what they're up against, and they're going down this road. That's why I love what you two are doing. Is like you you have this belief you don't have to hit rock bottom, and I, I believe that same thing. Um, but people need to know that they're on the fucking path there. If they don't believe mm. they're on the path there in the first place, then you can't get them to do anything about it. And without any awareness around like some of these symptoms, which people have normalized, they, they, they just think it's normal or society tells them it's normal. 
Um, and so they just continue on this hypnotic rhythm, like they just drift into into a state of worseness. Yeah, that's why I want to share this. But yeah, I, you know, th- there is a dis-ease that I feel throughout this conversation of God. What happens if this gets out, and what happens if it's traced back to me? And I guess I'll fucking deal with that when that happens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, uh, go ahead, Hal. Well, I was just going to say, one of the questions that I really have is also like, um, so what is it like, you know, dating, fine, we talked about, but can you have casual sex or is that like, you know, how do you deal with that kind of stuff? Hmm. Yeah, I'd say the jury's still out on that too. I've, I've gone back and forth with it. You know, I've lived the life of a monk for like those nine months and that didn't feel right to me. Um, I, I feel like we are intimate and sexual beings and to deny that, um, which I'd done, I've denied it. I've made it wrong for periods of time. Felt like I was disowning a part of myself, just kind of like, you know, how you you push back on me for saying like the naughty thing. It's like, this is a part of who I am. I want to embrace that. But I also know that there's, there's some sort of line out there for me that when I go beyond, like when I go too casual or I indulge in too much fantasy I, I like. I don't know where that line is. It's kind of like that that saying about pornography. I can't define exactly what it is, but I know it when I see it. Right. Like I know when I'm there and I've gone over the line. I just don't I haven't figured out the boundary yet. So, the casual sex is something that I've been exploring with some with some really really positive outcomes, and some where I've seen myself regress into old behaviors and patterns and objectification, and that's not where I want to be. Yeah. What is, what is recovery then? Like, is there, do you, in recovery from sex addiction, do you talk about sobriety? What is sobriety in this case? You know, this is where I struggle with the, the 12 step program. And, you know, I've, I've read obviously a lot of what hip sobriety has on, on their website in terms of beliefs and some of the problems of the, the 12 step foundation and curriculum. I, where it's been really useful is coming into a room where there is support mm-hmm. and where there are people who like, you don't feel like you're alone that you feel like at first that you're the only one with these perverted weird things. And you find out that there's so many people who are doing it. So to actually do an inventory of all the shit that you've done, right? Mm-hmm. Like to identify your, like your worst moments and then to disclose it to someone to release that, that fear of like, no one will love me if they really know who I am. That's mm-hmm. the, that, that's like a really foundational part. And it's something I value and treasure of the recovery program. And then working the program sobriety kind of consists of going to meetings, having a sponsor, being sponsored. Many times it, it's identifying your, you know, bottom line behaviors, which for me, it's pornography. It's paying for sex, which I didn't do very much. But with that porn star, like I know that I'm out of my control if I'm doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, intriguing with women in committed relationships, mm-hmm. right? So like I ended up pursuing women who were either married or, you know, in a committed relationship. That's how I ended up with my, you know, that girlfriend. That's mm-hmm. when I know that I'm, I'm really not in a good state. So I just having the awareness around that and then staying off of those behaviors are extremely beneficial. Where I find the breakdown occurs, especially for people who have been in the, the program for a while and who have stabilized off their worst behaviors is, it's just this constant focus on your character defects 
mm-hmm. this constant focus and these inventories on all the things that you've done wrong. And then like really looking at your feelings when things are bad. And it's just like where your thoughts go, your energy flows. And I see so many people who've been in the rooms for a while, for a while who quote unquote have sobriety, but they're fucking miserable. Yeah. And I, I, there's something missing that I'm seeking because, um, because I've plateaued. Mm-hmm. I've seen a lot of people in the room who have plateaued. I don't, I don't have someone that I would look up to, to be able to say, I would be willing to take guidance from you because I think that you've done it in a way where yeah. I would aspire to be like you. Um, so there, there's a lot more work that needs to be done, I believe, out there for support and recovery. And a lot of those questions that you, you are asking me, the tough ones, the right ones, like, can you be in a relationship? Can you have casual mm-hmm. sex? Can you... And the, the majority of the answers you will get from the sex addiction um, uh, community is no. No, never. Yeah. You can't masturbate. You can't watch porn. You can't do fantasy. You can't have casual sex. No, 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 no. And that's really helpful to start. But then when you're living decades after Doesn't that. Doesn't feel like a bridge to living in a more, an, an no, expansive life. No, it feels like the same thing that started you on this path. Right, which is this, like, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do this, this is wrong. Um, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. Yeah. Just to be clear, the Laura works the steps and also is an AA. I don't. Okay. Um, so she's, so we, that's, we've got two sides here of, of experience. Cool. Yeah, and I, what, what you would say, you know, some of the things that you say, you know, I, I'm in agreement with. I'm not. Uh, there's, I have ambivalence around certain aspects of it too, and and appreciate things, and you know, don't appreciate others. So I, I am nodding my head, you know, as you're saying some of this stuff, and I just think it's, you know, through this whole conversation, I, which has been amazing, I feel like you're so right. There's, there, a, I'm so glad we're having it because it needs to be out there. It's not something I would, um, I understand so much more than I did an hour and a half ago. And two, there, yeah, it needs to, it's all connected. All of this stuff is connected. What we talk about, whether it's alcohol or sex or pot or technology or success or whatever it is, it's all, we're all seeking the same needs. We're all seeking to fulfill the same needs. I just am fascinated that it's extra tricky for, I would say, maybe for this and for food, although we accept that it seems to be more. Uh, a lot more that you can't, you could live without sex, but nobody, but do you want to, you can't live without connection and love to other human beings, you know? So it's like, how do you live with this in a way that is not destructive and um, not only not destructive, but really positive and empowering. Uh, It's such a, it's such a question worth. So true. You're right. And, and by the way, like the, Napoleon Hill is one of my favorite authors. Napoleon Hill wrote the book mm-hmm. called Think and Grow Rich. Um, I think there's only like 15 books that have ever sold more than 50 million copies and Think and Grow Rich is one of them. But he has this mm-hmm. other book called Outwitting the Devil, which mm-hmm. wasn't released for 70 or 75 years after he'd written it because he thought it was too controversial. But there's a point he makes in there. And by the way, Napoleon Hill interviewed like I think a thousand of the world's most successful people over a 20 year period. And he came up with this one concept, or you come up with many concepts, but this one that relates to our conversation, which is some of the greatest leaders in the world are extraordinarily driven sexually. They just mm-hmm. have figured out a way to channel that in, like, in healthy ways 
in intimacy, but then also in the work and in the work and purpose that they do. And I've found that ever since I entered recovery, that that's a thousand percent true because where I'd been scattering my energy, I've aligned it around a certain passion and purpose, which has been building out this new career. And like, I can't even tell you the force that I had behind it once I've channeled that energy. Yeah. Well, it's brahmacharya. I mean, have you ever studied, um, have you studied yoga at all? Not studied it. No. Um, brahmacharya, it's just the idea that, um, I mean, to use your sexual, to basically to use your, um, to use your sexual energy wisely. Uh, and I mean, it could be, I think it can be translated as, um, celi- like to remain celibate, but it's all related to the, um, the second chakra, which just means that your creative, your creative energy comes from the same place your sexual energy does. Yes. And this idea mm-hmm. that you either can just shoot it out the bottom or you can preserve it and crank it up and use it through the top. Um, yes. In a graphic way of saying it, but it's cool. You should look into it. Might be really interesting. Brahmacharya. Awesome. It's the um, uh, fifth. Oh God, I can never remember. Is it a yama or a niyama, Laura? I think it's a yama. Yeah, it's one of the restraints. Um, I think it's maybe it's the niyama. I don't know, but it's one of. It's I can't part remember of the either. Eight, it's part of. If you look up the eightfold path, um, uh, the ashtanga, the eightfold path uh, by. Pad- Patanjali, um, you'll find it, and it's the fifth one of the of the first of the first um, of the eight steps. And I think it's the Niyama. I don't know. Anyway, but it's yeah, it's it's interesting because I also have found in times where I've been like oversexed, um, which uh, happened to me about a year after sobriety. I was I was I mean I I went to my yoga teachers. I was in Kundalini training, and I was and I just felt like I felt like a, a mess. Um, and all over the place. And I, I just went to him and I was like, I need to stop thinking about sex so much. And, Hmm. um, anyways, we worked, there's a lot of stuff that you can do around like the second chakra and just, um, and, you know, essentially using that energy for, um, cause it's energy, right? It's energy. Um, and using that energy for, for, um, creative purposes. I don't know. Oh, it's, it's so true. All my creativity flourishes when, when I channel my sexual energy. It's amazing. I mean, you can, I can write books. I can do videos. I can create businesses. Yeah, right. But like when that stuff is being shot out, like you were saying, into, into, into the ether, you know? Just, so to speak. So to speak. Yeah. But it's true. I mean, it's either, it's right. It either just falls out the bottom or it's like preserved and cranked up to the higher centers of, of um, anyway. So, yeah. All right. Do we want to stop there? This has been such a, it's been such yeah. a great conversation. It's so funny because I'm still, um, I'm very, I'm not entirely comfortable talking about sex. Um, and when you were saying like your, that thing that your mom did growing up or, you know, and you watched movies with like PG 13 with like, you know, slightly sexual scenes. My, I mean, my parents were the same that covered my eyes and I still have that like, Oh, we're doing, you know, even though I'm open, it still is just like one of those things. It's, it's hard. This is hard to talk about. And so thank you so much for, um, being an open book with us. Thank you. And saying tits. (laughs) 
Yeah, you know what I'll tell you what? That'll be the episode (laughs) title, actually. It's not going to be like any sex sex addiction. It's just going to be tits. 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 Oh, that's one last question before we go. Do you, okay, so do you think you're going to always identify as a sex addict? Do you feel any sort of, like you said you don't like labels, and you but you call yourself a sex addict. I'm just really curious about that part of it, too. Yeah. Um, Well, first of all, I think you should make sure that tits is in all caps for the uh, podcast. (laughs) Uh, They already are, so don't worry. Good, good. That's locked in. Yeah, so the, the, I think why I choose to call myself a sex addict right now is because I still feel like I'm in that embryonic stage of figuring out what my relationship is with my sexuality. And by calling myself that, it, 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 it gives me a humility, right? Like it, it reminds me that um, I could easily veer off course. And I've done, I've, I have veered off course even in sure. my recovery. Sure. Um, and it happens so goddamn fast and, yeah. you know, like, I don't even know, like as, as aware as I am, sometimes it's just like, it happens. I'm like, fuck, I didn't even well, it realize comes it's from like, your, like, it comes from your reptilian brain. I mean, it's the same thing. It's the same yeah. exact thing. It comes, it's just like when, when we talk to people that are like, I was driving home, I had every intention not to drink. And before you know it, you're, you're in the liquor store and you're purchasing wine and it's like something else just kind of grabs you. And it's cause the part that's driving you to it is the part that doesn't necessarily think ahead. It's the part that's just thinking about the next, you know, 15 yes. seconds. So it is, I mean, it, like it does, it just like happens. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and so until, until that part is mastered, I guess you could say like where I, where, where I, I can, I can pause and have a choice versus ending up in that liquor store. Right. Uh, I think it's useful for me to call myself a sex addict because it reminds me of how much mm-hmm. work I have to do. Now I'm also at a point where I'm seeking, I'm seeking what is that next level where, cause I don't feel like I've made the kind of progress that I would like to make after my first year and a half thrilled. Now I've plateaued and I'm, I'm wondering what that next level is. And I don't necessarily know if I'm going to find that inside of the, the, the 12 step program and inside the rooms. So I've looked into some higher level courses, um, like where you could go for a, a retreat, really get broken down, um, and see if, mm-hmm. if something like, like an immersive experience, cause I've never done an immersive experience around this, uh, to see if that would take me to you know, break through the plateau to the next level. But you're also, I mean, doing all these other things too. Like you and I met at a 10 day silent retreat. You just took a, you know, like you just took a, a lot of time off yourself to travel and you're pursuing your purpose. And um, when you say that that's like also kind of part of it, or am I just putting words in your mouth? <laughs> Absolutely. A big part of it. Actually, one of the biggest reasons why I did the 10 day silent meditation was to see if I could get a better handle on this sex addiction. And Holly, for the first 48 hours, not even fucking kidding you. <laughs> Not even kidding you. Like 47 of them was, was consumed with sex. Really? I, like the entire time, I wasn't focused at all on the sensations in my body. It was, mm-hmm. there were three women I was talking to leading up to that, that event. And all I was doing was just thinking about what I'd be doing with them no when shit. I got back from my tr- for 48 hours. Huh. Now... So then that's the thing. It's like whatever you crave the most in that, in that deprivation chamber of you know, take away all your stimulus, whatever you crave the most comes shooting to the top. That's what was there and all consuming for me. But then on Wednesday morning, uh, I made a commitment like, you know, or Wednesday, the third day, uh, I made a commitment to, to release that. And I only spent like five minutes that day and engaged in sexual fans for the next six days. Um, it was gone. And then the day before we left, 
knowing that I was going to be released into the world and having those text messages coming up, then the fantasy came back. Huh. The, the sound magician helped, but it did not. I've had some of my roughest days in recovery since then. Um, mm-hmm. the, the, the sound meditation certainly helped me to overcome some of them and to diffuse it without going down a path and going way off the rails. Yeah. But I'm still looking for, I think a big part of it is what you said before. A big part of it is I think the construct I'm operating under is this is wrong. Certain things about me are wrong, which caused the problem in the first place. Yeah. And I haven't figured that out yet. Yeah. No, I get it. Well, um, Oh, to that, okay, um, Dark Side of the Light Chasers by Debbie Ford is really great. But, okay, we have to wrap this up. We're at, an, we're at almost an hour and 40 minutes. Um, this has been so amazing, and um, I'm really interested to hear some of the feedback um, on, on this um, just from, from our people just because I think it's, it's just so, it's so important, and you're, you've been so honest, and thank you for letting us explore yeah. this with you. It's, um, it's, a, it's a big deal. Thank you. This was awesome. And the questions you were asking were really made me think. So let's not make this our last conversation. (laughs) Yeah, I know. We didn't even get to like the other 10 questions. All right. Um, Thanks a lot, JJ. Thanks, ladies. Hi. Okay. That was great. That was great. How are you? JJ. I feel good. I feel like I was 